you get on your bike and just bike for like miles. You, you heard the music in the way, 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 way distance. That was the only way to, to guide yourself there. And it was like, there cannot be something out here. You could ride your bike at 40 miles an hour as fast as you possibly could to the horizon and you feel the wind in your hair and freedom to kind of exist wildly, as wildly as you can imagine. Every year in late August, tens of thousands of people show up in the Black Rock Desert in Nevada and build an entire city from scratch. Something about the playa, you know, 400 square miles of just flat gypsum dust. <laughs> it's just insane. You feel like you're on another planet. And then you get to the middle of nowhere and it's like the most amazing club you've ever been to, but it's in the middle of nowhere. There is nothing for miles. The Black Rock Desert is one of only five places on the planet of the Earth that the ground is so flat you can actually see the curvature of the planet. There's no exchanging of money. There's these 10 principles that you're encouraged to live by. And everywhere around you is spectacle and freedom and the chance to be a part of something. So everyone talking about Burning Man. Have you been at Burning Man? Oh my God. It was really interesting because they offer you free drugs. They offer you free gifts. They offer you food. They offer you their time. Most people who went out there were radically self-reliant. That sense of freedom is profound and deeply impactful. For some people, it's too much. It was a real awakening to me that no one's going to hold your hand out here. Go be you. Go find your experience. Everyone wearing something interesting. Like most of the people didn't name themselves in their real names. They have burning man names. And I tried to ask people, like, why are you saying that you feel free out here? It is a place that gives people the opportunity to try on a new version of themselves. And at the end of every event, thousands gather around and burn a giant wooden effigy of a man. You know, why not burn a man? It's ritualistic. And you know what? You know what people love? Fire. Other people talked about freedom from judgment. They would say, there's so much weirdness out here that no one is looking at my skin color. There's some dude over there with like horns and a cape. And so nobody is questioning my sexuality. Nobody cares. And it's amazing to me that we go out in this blank canvas and we build a city and we have this big event and then we completely tear it down and completely make it disappear. What comes to mind when you think of Burning Man? See, for me, there's something both post-apocalyptic and utopian about it. Kind of like that dance scene in The Matrix 2. Like Mad Max meets Coachella meets that red desert scene in Blade Runner on Molly at a techno rave orgy next to a Bedouin tent. Oh, what a day! What a lovely day! But also, there's something transformational about it. Something challenging and eye-opening that allows you to peel back the layers of human connection. But I have to admit something to you. I've never been to Burning Man. I was going to go, and then, well, you know what happened. I've heard from so many people over the years that this event has changed their lives. And so I wanted to dig into that and the many myths of Burning Man. So today on the show, we'll hear from a lot of longtime burners, some new ones, and even someone who helped start it but won't go anymore. I'm trying to understand its real history, its impact on the people who go, as well as the culture at large. 
and how the world's uncertain future is impacting the future of this yearly gathering. Greetings from somewhere, I'm Zach Mack, and this is Burning Man. Growing up in the 80s and 90s in the San Francisco Bay Area, I always felt the presence of Burning Man because it grew out of various counterculture scenes and started in 86, the year I was born. The first ever Burning Man happened in San Francisco at Baker Beach, and there's a lot of lore about those early days. You want to know about Burning Man? Burning Man did not just pop out of nowhere. This is John Law. He's one of the founders of the event, and he knows all about the lore. This mythology that's risen up about Burning Man, about one guy having an idea and like being pissed off at his girlfriend or something, is a bunch of fucking bullshit, basically. There was a very vibrant culture here and several organizations that Burning Man grew out of directly. John and the other burners familiar with the history are always quick to point out the other groups that influenced Burning Man and its eventual pilgrimage to Nevada. The first year we took Burning Man in the desert, it was a Cacophony Society event. You just Google Cacophony Society and Burning Man. They were driving their cars as fast as they wanted to and shooting their guns as much as they wanted to. And it was pretty insane. That's all prior to the Burning Man event. And uh, so with Burning Man, you could go out to the desert and do pretty much whatever the fuck you wanted to. What I brought to the event was an idea of putting the event somewhere where we would not be fucked with for the longest time possible by the authorities. And so if you look at the Black Rock Desert, there's a confluence of three counties right up the top. And then I would put the event as far off-road as possible, literally 10, 12, 13 miles off-road in an area that was kind of debatable whose jurisdiction it was. The people who went in those early days primarily wanted one thing unfettered freedom. And so the temporary autonomous zone is what the event was. Temporary autonomous zone, if you don't know what that is, the concept is people who want to do whatever they want to do, who want to be in an anarchist sense, collaboratively, you know, so they can't be monsters or violent idiot iterations of anarchists, but who want to do something that's not condoned by control, which is controls anything that you perceive of as control, the government, the police, your mom, you know, whatever. The idea is you find a place that you can go to where they won't really get what you're doing or they don't really care that much about, control doesn't care that much about, and you bring your friends and you bring whatever you want to bring and you do whatever the fuck you want to do for as long as you think you can get away with it and then you run away before they can crush you flat like a bug. And that's what Burning Man was. So that's how things got started, but a lot can change in 30 years, right? For one, the sheer popularity and attendance of Burning Man has skyrocketed. And look, once a lot of people start showing up somewhere, they aren't all going to have the same values or reasons for being there. But even though Burning Man has changed over the years, it's still actively trying to hold on to its core principles. Amanda Lucia is a professor of religious studies and author of the book White Utopias, The Religious Exoticism of Transformational Festivals. And she breaks down why Burning Man isn't just another festival. Nothing is for sale at Burning Man except for ice and coffee and that is radically different i would say than most other festivals and it is really generated by the community there is no overarching production company who is building stages and creating an event burning man has actively disavowed the term festival and that's in large part because i think of the global surge in popularity of festivals in the past 10 to 20 years um, where people have an impression where they buy a ticket and they are given an experience in exchange for that ticket. And Burning Man Project has really pushed against that, arguing that in purchasing a ticket, you purchase the opportunity to co-create Black Rock City. 
and not any kind of prepackaged experience that is given to you for free or, you know, for the value of the ticket price. What's different now, certainly scale. David Boyer is a longtime burner and just made an entire season about Burning Man on his podcast, The Intersection. You know, 96, I had no idea what I was going to. 2019, you can't show up at Burning Man not having a clue what it's about. At the very least, you're going to Google it. David's done a lot of work looking into how Burning Man's changed over the years, as well as the perception of how Burning Man's changed over the years. You know, I think this is an existential threat, not just to the event, but to the organization and the whole organized movement. I also think, you know, there's way more money involved. There's way more infrastructure. There's way more hierarchy, all of that. And then you have a community that has grown every year, adding another 50,000 people to it. So that's a lot of voices and a lot of different ideas. And so I think that was happening. And I think that they needed to do something to acknowledge it. I think it's pretty much overblown though. I mean, I, I, I don't think it was like they woke up one day and realized they had created a monster. All the money pouring into Burning Man eventually created something called plug and play camps. Plug and play is a camp where you show up and everything is provided for you for a fee. You know, most of Burning Man, the people there have spent months preparing, dealing with logistics and making sure they pick up water on the way and having camp meetings about what they're going to do. And, you know, on and on and on. It doesn't start when you hit the playa. It started months before that and continues after versus... People who make a reservation, show up, costumes are provided, place to sleep, what to wear, what to drink, what to eat, all that is provided. And then you helicopter in, you get there somehow, it could be by a private plane. But regardless, when you got there, you basically had an experience planned for you that you could kind of just step into the costume, spend a little time and then leave. And leave thinking nothing about the land, thinking nothing about the garbage that you've left around, thinking nothing about the larger community. And which isn't to say that that's every person in every plug-and-play camp. But if something is marketed as a luxury experience, then it's no wonder they show up and behave a certain way, where you're there for the entertainment, you're there for you, period. It's just gross, basically. And it's having very little understanding of what the event is about. In 2019, Burning Man did take some steps to reemphasize its values. It famously disinvited a camp and warned some others that were more interested in Burning Man as a luxurious fire festival type event. I mean, it's still a great event in its own way. I mean, it's like Disneyland for attorneys and uh, accountants on ecstasy. This is John Law again. Burning Man became what I got away from the city for, which is poor punks and hippies basically serving the rich punks and hippies. That's what Burning Man became. It's not what it was. Uh, It's still a great event. A lot of people go, they do stuff, it's got great value, like Disneyland does. And people go there and it can be creative in a way that, in a contained, safe, isolated way, so it doesn't really scare any Republicans too bad. John, as you may have guessed, is no longer involved in Burning Man. He left in the 90s when he started to see things move in a direction that he wasn't into. He says he still supports Burning Man, though. He just doesn't think it's for him anymore, like, at all. It's basically a condoned, sanctioned uh, vacation for internet kids from Silicon Valley. They work for 51 weeks out of the year in their little cell, working away 90 hours a week for whatever fucking dumbass platform company they're working for. And then they get permission, not only they get permission, they get social status by going to this party, doing a lot of drugs, painting themselves blue and fucking somebody they just met. That's in great part what Burning Man is. Not for everybody, but for a certain large contingent of it. 
And if you look all through history, repressive societies have to have a safety valve for their slaves, or in this case, their grunt workers. And that is most major cultures have. That's why you have Mardi Gras. So you get drunk and piss on yourself in a corner like you're not getting, getting too much trouble for it because it, it's a sanctioned event. And so Burning Man is way better in a lot of ways than most of those things. But that's what Burning Man is. It's what it became. And that's not a bad thing. OK, I get it. It's not a bad thing. Right. Mardi Gras is not a bad thing. St. Patrick's Day. OK, you know, SantaCon became this dumbass drunken pub crawl, but it's still a fun nut. It's like the movie The Purge. So Emile Durkheim was a French sociologist. This is Amanda Lucia again. He argued essentially for precisely that, that that was the function of festival. And he looked at early religions and he argued that the festival itself is a process that allows for stasis in society. So society, in fact, is buttressed by a festival. People go they do all of the social inversions for the one time that they are allowed during the festival. You know, drugs and alcohol had quite a high bit to do with this, right? That people would get intoxicated during the festival and they kind of have wild orgies and then go back to stasis. And in fact, the wild abandon of the festival enabled people to subsist in stasis in the kind of traditional power hierarchies of society the other 51 weeks of the year. And it certainly, if you have that view, calls into question the notion of transformation, because then it makes the festival actually the antithesis of transformation, because what you're doing is reinforcing social norms and hierarchies and power relations and not actually transforming them in any sense. I do think that there is the core idea is still there, which is that you kind of leave your life behind, you go to the middle of nowhere, and you create a version of yourself that you like. Again, David Boyer. Society has changed so much that it's still really, really edgy. It's the edgiest thing that most people there are probably going to do in their lives. Obviously, like the knock on Burning Man is like, oh, it's just a tech playground. The knock on Burning Man is so fucking annoying. And it's why I made the podcast. And it's why I did the season was that I was really sick of millennials in the office, like bagging on Burning Man and having never been. And it's like, you have no idea what you're talking about. And you are basically just parroting what other people are saying, or you're clearly following some influencers on Instagram, because that's not really what it is. And so I went back to kind of tell these smaller stories of, you know, the family that decides to like build an art car using their grandmother's Honda Civic as a base and creating an art car in her honor, the Christian camp that's there you know, the Christian camp religious as fuck is there to kind of heal wounds for other people who have maybe been wronged by the church. You know, those sorts of stories I think are kind of amazing and don't get the play in the popular culture. Longtime burners will often push back on the oversimplification of who goes there and why. It's very uh, difficult to get to Burning Man. It's very expensive to go to Burning Man. So if you're just looking to go get high, it's not very cost effective. Uh, you kind of need to be there for other reasons. Nudity is uh, commonly talked about. The reality is, is that whole body sunburns are really bad. Also, the dust out there is alkali and it will burn your skin. So you'll see like new people walking around barefoot their first day and, and then having to soak their feet in, in uh, vinegar in order to neutralize the alkali and not get chemical burns. Well, it, it's out there and there's lots of wild stuff and lots of big art. Uh, and there is some sex stuff and there is some drug stuff. Uh, I think that's not really the focus. And I'm, I think the fact that it used to be the focus might have been more urban legend than fact. 
I think with an event this big, there's always going to be that tug of war of what it is and isn't. I mean, you look at the world and especially how the San Francisco Bay Area has changed over the years. It's pretty easy to track some of those changes at Burning Man. Here's Amanda Lucia again. And it's increasingly hard. The more powerful neoliberal capitalism becomes, the more people feel like they can buy anything, including an experience at Burning Man, right? People selling Burning Man packages and stupid stuff like that. And on the other hand, I would say that even the super rich, it can be valuable and transformative experience to go do Molly in the desert once a year. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I think maybe it will change how tech firms and CEOs operate should they go do something radically otherwise. What does it mean that you can go to a place like Burning Man and have these really transformational experiences that are linked to so many different cultures? I think Burning Man is really like a mashup of so many different types of cultures that it's mostly for white people. I think it's significant. It's not only that this is something that's created at Burning Man or it's created in festival spaces, but I think it's very interesting the way in which it has continued and finds deep expression in the festival as this kind of new institution of spiritual exploration. The crisis that I see is when it becomes a crisis of representation and when people of color are largely written out of the narrative and it becomes white folks representing those traditions. I just flipped to a part of my book that says cultural appropriation and its impact starts off with the Burning Man community has had a tense relationship with issues of cultural appropriation for many years, end quote. Burning Man, the organization, is not unaware of this. And to their credit, they are actively taking steps to address it. It is actually diversifying um, significantly. In 2016, it was about 82% white. And in 2017, it was 77.1% white. So that's considerable just in one year, dropping almost 5%. And I believe the intention is to move the needle even farther toward the middle. You know, with that said, it is still just about three quarters white. The income figures at Burning Man are pretty divided. You know, they publish that with the census and you can check it out. But it's not nearly as rich as the kind of blogosphere would tell you. Amanda's been to Burning Man a few times now. And even though it was always in a research capacity for her book on transformational festivals, she says it's impossible to go there and not feel its impact. Do you feel like that experience of going was transformational for you? Oh, of course. Yeah, has to be. It can't not be. And transformation, I think that's the trick with that word, you know, is that people kind of think that it's always good. It's not good always. Like transformation can happen in all kinds of difficult ways. And in fact, it usually does. If you look at really transformative experiences in people across certainly religious traditions, sometimes it's getting fired from a job or breaking up with a lover or, you know, breaking your leg and having to learn how to walk again or whatever it is. That can be radically transformational. It doesn't mean that it's always fun and easy while you're doing it. So in 2020, Burning Man did not happen in the traditional sense. When we come back, we're going to look at what did happen. Hi. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In 2020, the official Burning Man did not take place in the desert. but. Something unofficial happened out there anyways. And then this year happened, and Burning Man was canceled. And so we would not be building Black Rock City. It's like, it would be interesting to see who shows up anyway. Uh, got a plane ticket, flew to Reno, got a rental car, and, uh, and drove out. And stopped when my GPS said you're about 150 feet away from the spot. And discovered somebody else was already camping there. There were motorcycles, there were motorized hang gliders, there were dune buggies. It definitely had a, an edge to it that you don't really experience at Burning Man because everything is so regulated. But when people saw what we were doing, all the guys coming in from airplane, they all landed right where we were at, you know. We had airplanes just drop it in left and right, you know, where we were just hanging out and dancing or whatever. There was an element to it that was definitely edgier than Burning Man. And it was really enjoyable because of that. <laughs> we mostly slept all day and had fun during the night. It looked very familiar. <laughs> what was absent was the massive scale art. There's other people out there. It looks very much like uh, first couple of days of Burning Man would be like before they open it, when people are coming out to start building the city. So it was kind of a half circle with live bands and DJs and art, and then in the middle, some beautiful architecture. And, you know, it was 2,000 people, so the density wasn't quite the same, obviously, but the look and feel, especially at night with all the lights running and the sound camps just going off and people dancing, it was very reminiscent of what most people who have experienced, you know, that sort of blissful visual at Burning Man experience. We built this little city off on our own, and at some point we had at least 2,000 people in our city. So we didn't quite bring enough porta potties for that. But when people heard that there were porta potties way off in the distance, they actually made the trek out <laughs> to find us, and that gave us the nickname of the Shitty. People were Definitely um, uh, socially distancing. Everything else was aesthetically very, very similar. It was very peaceful. It was very dark at night. There's a lot of light activity going on during Burning Man, partly because it's cooler at night and people come out more, and also because it's so dark naturally that you have to light up everything or people will crash into you. Then all of a sudden, you know, a dune buggy would zip by you going 40 miles an hour. You're just like, whoa. <laughs> And while all this was going on, Burning Man, the actual organization, put together something else. Something much safer for the pandemic. So they had an online event called the Multiverse. It was an experience where they created an online version of Black Rock City where you could actually design your own avatar and go hang out and listen to DJs and wander around and meet other people. I heard really mixed bits about it. Some people actually loved it and continued to go back into that space for a period of a couple of weeks. 
other people kind of got lost in the tech of it and were just like, oh, I tried to log in, but I couldn't find the link. And then, <laughs> you know, I mean, just depends on how tech savvy or interested you were or are. Burning Man has not officially said whether or not there will be an event online or in the desert in 2021. That announcement should be coming soon, but the organization lost over 90% of its revenue last year and lately has had to rely on some big donations to stay afloat. In this moment, it's unclear what the future is going to look like anywhere. And consequently, it's difficult to know what the future of Burning Man is. For one, what happens to the community? And with everything that's changed, will people still need this institution? There's a lot of people missing it. Feeling low in the fall because there was no kind of magic reset button in August. And I don't think that we will know until spring what the reality is. And that's just too late for all of the makers and for all of the planning and infrastructure and all of that. They're not going to want to sell tickets to people and then have to once again return them. So then you're, you're talking at an event that's two years have gone by. How much of the thread do you lose? Do people sort of create their own mini Burning Mans in their community, which is already happening, and feel like there's less of a need to go? You know, if I had an extra $2,000 or $5,000 or $20,000 and an extra 500 hours of time, what would be the best thing that I could do with that time and money? I'm not sure that answer is always Burning Man for me. I think we do need the institution. I think the amount of money that goes to artists to support art that would normally not get made in any other context is just, I mean, it's undeniably important. The magic, I think, of being out on the playa, the real magic is having the art and the musicians and the DJs and, you know, just that incredible creative energy, which nobody's done it better than Burning Man, that's for sure. A party for the healthy and wealthy white elites of this country that is, you know, entertaining kind of over forms of cultural appropriation will become passe. It will become uncool. And so I think the culture will deal with that. This is Amanda Lucia again, author of White Utopias. In fact, I just did a Burning Man survey this week as to like, will you come back to Black Rock City? They're trying to figure out what does 2021 look like and how is COVID going to impact and, and what does the community feel? So when they listed all of the potential deterrents for why you would not come back to Black Rock City, you know, one was changed financial circumstances due to COVID or one was concerns about COVID transmission. One was lack of diversity. So I think they're conscious that this is kind of a, a change. What do you think they'll need to like change or improve? I think it's really difficult, honestly. I think they're in a hard position because the whole point is that it's a non-curated event. So the more you curate it and put rules on it, the people who are looking for a non-curated event, that's a deterrent. You know, you can't have complete freedom, you know, when you have more and more people. And I'm not decrying that again. It's fine. Bigger events are fine. They're just different. You have to control them. I personally and some other people weren't interested in control, in power. We were interested in freedom. They're two different things. They, they don't go together very well, which makes Burning Man a miracle in kind of a way because what they sell is freedom. And, and there's some little bit of freedom in the actual packaging, right? There's a little bit of it in there. Part of why Burning Man might not happen is the logistics of dealing with the federal government. And part of it is that it's a very large ship and it, it's hard to make quick movements and quick decisions with that kind of organization. I think they're doing okay. But they're in trouble this year. 
Well, yeah. You know, if your main source of revenue is ticket sales for an event that didn't happen, that you had to then refund a good portion of that to people. Although a lot of people donated parts of their ticket or they probably recouped a little bit of that. But then you're looking at another year of probably the event not happening in 2021. So that's two years where you would have taken in 90 plus million in revenue. And instead you're taking in, I don't know what, I mean, we'll see what their annual report says, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was a fraction. Any event that generates 50 to $60 million to throw a two week party that can't save enough money to survive for a couple of years, they need some accounting help. I think the reality is that money will never be a problem for Burning Man. Because you have people who are gazillionaires who have drank the Kool-Aid and every year chip in a lot of money. It's such a cultural institution. It's going to survive in some way, shape, or form. At the end of the day, it's not going away no matter what happens. Whatever the situation with the money is, you know, I'm, I'm not really privy to that. But there's too many people who have gained way too much personal growth from the experiences they've had out there to let it just disappear. What's your read on Burning Man in 2025, in 2030? What, where, where do you think it's going? I can't imagine between now and the rest of my life that there won't be a little something in the desert forever. I think it's sort of like, if you look back at like the Sears catalog from like 1972, and they're selling like flower power t-shirts and dresses and whatever. I think it will be so ingrained in the culture that you won't even notice it or recognize where it came from or, or what it's about. But I think there will be the sort of people who love a subculture and will dig into the history and the details, but other people won't know why they're wearing a furry vest in 2025. I mean, especially if people are no longer going into work, the whole digital nomad thing, I mean, that is Burning Man at its core is like somebody in a van working out of a van around the world with no home. You know, that is Burning Man. I also think, prediction, that there will be Burning Man related retirement communities. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, the, the interesting thing about Burning Man is like every year because of the way it's thrown you you guys construct and deconstruct a city every single year and so i kind of think every next year is the chance to get it right or the chance to make it better burning man the organization has a practice of telling people who've been working or volunteering there for a long time to take a break sometimes right take a year off some theme camps have taken a year off or art cars have taken a year off. Now everyone has taken a year off. We can all stop and be like, okay, wait, what about this experience really matters to us and, that, and do we want to keep doing? Um, and so uh, I am very excited to see what comes back. I have no idea what that's going to be. This is Burning Man. Okay, that is all for today. I gotta say, last week was a huge week for the show. We were featured front and center on Apple Podcasts in their carousel. And also, Nick Qua reviewed the show for Vulture. It is a very thoughtful analysis of what we're doing, and it is linked in the show notes. Once again, if you share the show, it is super helpful. We're not big time yet, I swear. So rating and reviewing it and sharing it with friends, that all makes a difference. Trust me. 
I want to give a big-ass thanks to Megan Cunane for all her help on this episode. Megan, I adore you. Your instincts are incredible, and just thank you. Thanks to Scoranon for another anonymous soundtrack and some flexibility this week. Appreciate you. Big thanks to Dan Turek, who always paints himself blue before mixing, mastering, and sound designing these episodes while on Molly. Big help on the legal side from my man, Sam Alcabez. Consistently dope-ass original art by Alicia Tenoyan. If you have a road trip story you want to share, please call and leave a voicemail for the show. The number for that is in the show notes. Check me out. All right, y'all. We will see you next week. Safe travels. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.